Daniel Humsey here, Director of the Neighborhood Empowerment Network, and today here at San Francisco City Hall, we're hosting the 2018 Bay Area Regional Community Resilience Summit. It's an amazing network of organizations that have come together to go deep on the issue of how can we build equity into all of our resilience planning and make sure that all residents are able to be part, not only of the response phase, but a part of the recovery phase as well. One of the sessions that we uh, had an honor of hosting today was a complete breakdown on the Empowered Communities Program, which was funded by M Microsoft and the Walter and Lease Haas Fund. And now join our presentation and see how we are advancing equity in our work here in San Francisco. And we're gonna take a minute and actually basically bring you up to speed on the work we've been doing here in the city for the last 10 years. Uh, the truth is many people in this room have seen this presentation, so uh, either A, take great pride because you helped develop the system, or just smile because you know I'm sensitive and it make me feel bad if you appeared bored any moment during my presentation, right? So, but we're really excited about the work we're doing and we want to just take a minute and share that with you. And so I'm gonna basically jump in really quickly and, and talk about the reality of this work. So, um, I do want to recognize that uh, there are two individuals that really gave us the runway uh, to do this work. Uh, this program originated uh, with the direction of uh, Gavin Newsom when he was mayor of the city and county of San Francisco. And those of you who may not know it, uh, mayor New Lieutenant Governor Newsom is actually incredibly passionate about this work. In fact, he was going to come today, but he had to attend a CSU meeting in the Southland because as uh, our friend Scott Mauvais pointed out, he feels that the connection of social connection, civic engagement, and disaster preparedness are all connected. And so for him, this is a very big priority for him, given he was the mayor of San Francisco and now working at the leadership level in the state. The other individuals, and that's the one that really gave me the opportunity to focus on this full time, uh, was the late Mayor Ed Lee. And uh, I know a lot of people have heard a lot about Mayor Lee's, you know, priorities and focuses. And what people don't know is that when he was city administrator before he became mayor, this was priority one. And why was that? Well, the truth is, is that Mayor Lee and I ended up going to New Orleans uh, post-Katrina and actually were charged with helping the Broadmoor neighborhood rebuild after Katrina. And so as you may recall, you know, when you look at what happens in a disaster is when you remove the water the outcomes look all very similar. You see a home here in the Ninth Ward that was blown off its foundation, uh, and then you see a home on Knob Hill that was burned to ground after the fire. Um, let's do forget, most of the fires in San Francisco post-earthquake were either set by the army or by people trying to cook breakfast, right? So how many people think we should use candles after disaster in our home? Oh, I love that. That's the best answer I've gotten all day. Um, but then, you know, there's this important image you have right here of this house and car. Now, being from San Francisco, immediately I think it's a Burning Man art piece. And, you know, house and car wrestle, house wins, right? The truth is, is that this is in the middle of the Ninth Ward. And I want you to think about the wave energy and water energy it takes to move two assets like that and stack them up. Right? I mean, we're all, when we were kids in the bathtubs with our boats, we'd spin everything around and create chaos, Right? The truth is, is that I want you also to remember, though, that when the earth, as a hurricane approached, the city declared that people had to self-evacuate to get out of harm's way. Now, they knew the levee system protecting many of the vulnerable neighborhoods had been under-engineered and needed to be replaced. But what they didn't think about was how much money does the poorest neighborhood in one of the poorest cities in America have in their back pocket on the last day of the month? Right? 
because their social security checks hadn't arrived yet. So the truth is, is what they were basically saying to hundreds of residents, we hope you can swim. And one of my colleagues isn't here today, Felicia Thibodeau, who runs the Bayview program, but her grandmother actually was lost in the, water, in the flood event in the Ninth Ward. And when you look back, you realize that just a few blocks away, there was a parking lot full of school buses that were left behind to drown. And you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, didn't anyone connect the dots? Like, self-evacuation for the economically disenfranchised is not really an option. The levees are going to fail in the neighborhoods they live in because they've been under-engineered. And we have tons of school buses sitting around that we can, you know, take over and use to get people out of harm's way. So in the end, even though only two inches of water fell in New Orleans that day, what we saw was one of the greatest social justice tragedies ever in the history of our country. And what I also feel for those of us in the room that are on the government side of this business is, is that we lost credibility at that moment. And we've been working, I think, aggressively, in many cases successfully, to restore that credibility. But in the end, if we can't be there for when people need us the most, then we need to be there beforehand to empower them to be their hero in case we can't do it for them. And so that's really what I think the lesson is of this, and that's what drives our work today. And that's why Mary Lee came back and said we need to do a lot more. Now, amongst all that carnage, we found something beautiful. So this is the uh, Broadmoor team that was assembled to rebuild their neighborhood. Um, you see Hal Rourke and Latoya Cantrell at the front by the, the display board. And then you also see Mayor Lee with his back and members of our planning team. And we supported and worked with them to help them implement their recovery plan because they didn't really believe they could trust their government to do it. Now what's exciting about that picture is you see Latoya Cantrell in that picture? Well, Latoya went on after her work as a community advocate and became elected city councilwoman for her district. How great is that? You know what's even greater is, as of last week, she is the first woman mayor of New Orleans. And she sat on this stage two years ago at the same summit and told everybody in this room, do not wait for the Calvary. You're the Calvary. So there's a lot of lessons in that. And one, of course, is this, is that out of disasters can come beautiful, great things but let's just make sure everyone's left is back at the table to celebrate those beautiful and great things, right? So we, she went on to do this incredible work. Now, what we did is, if you look at this picture, is you see the Broadmoor neighborhood. You see the school with the red brick roof. That building was destroyed in the hurricane. We actually helped them write a grant to rebuild it. It is the first certified LEED Platinum school in uh, Louisiana history. Um, and it was built because of grants that we helped them secure by having our contractors that write grants to us all the time for building projects in San Francisco provide them free technical aid. You see to the north, you see the, the buildings, there's a library and a, uh, a community clinic. We actually um, helped secure free Wi-Fi technology and computers um, to actually line the entire corridor so when children left the school, they'd have free Wi-Fi all the way to the library and to the community center to do homework. So it was an example of how this city helped another city rebuild, but we did it at the neighborhood level. And I just want to say that, you know, Mayor Lee has a lot of incredible legacies, but for 475 children every day, that's the living evidence of his commitment to this work. And I just want to honor him because, as you know, we lost him um, tragically um, earlier, later in the past this last year. And um, it was a big loss for us in the building. And uh, I just want to take a minute and acknowledge his work. So if you just would acknowledge that, I appreciate that very much.
So let's talk about uh, the program that gestated out of this. So we call it the Empowered Communities Program. Why is that? Well, because frankly, in looking at all the science, and Kristen Hogan actually did a lot of this research, is that people get that they have to get prepared for disasters, but it isn't always the best thing to put on the menu, if you know what I mean. But what people are interested in is empowerment. And so that's why we led with this empowerment narrative, because people are like, I don't want to be considered a victim. I want to be considered someone who's in control of my scenario. And that's what we said empowerment builds, right? So with that, we have the, the NEN universe, right? So this is one thing that I think we learned in Trevor and, and the folks in the Red Cross, and I talk about this all the time, is no one agency or organization is gonna save the neighborhood or save the city, right? Every, every agency in every municipality needs to take on resilience as its mission, right? In some way, shape, or form, right? So in our network, we have, of course, our government partners, right? So you see all the amazing city agencies that are partners in this work. We also have an amazing collection of nonprofit partners and from the faith community, the, the public safety community, the Red Cross, et cetera, et cetera. We also have this great network of private sector partners that are really, really helping us every day to succeed in this work. And then lastly, we have this amazing academic network that we work with. And to be very clear, if your city has a university or a community college or a, a, a UC, et cetera, et cetera, that should be a key asset in your partner in this work because universities care about community, especially community development, and care about health. And if you're not coordinating with the health students that have to do 200 hours of service in the communities, if you're not working with the GIS department that want to learn asset mapping, you're leaving millions of dollars on the table in your municipality, right? And so here in San Francisco, we work with UCSF, San Francisco State, and now we're launching a big partnership with USF. But we just wrapped up a huge partnership with Stanford's Design School on a project called the Strong Home Program. And the first thing we decided was, after disaster, you may not go to Golden Gate Park, but you don't want to be indoors. So if you live in a single-family dwelling home, where will you go? Your backyard. But how do you set up your backyard to shelter in it for three weeks after disaster? The proverbial question is, what do you do with the poo, right? And so the bottom line is, is that Stanford hosted a bunch of charrettes with uh, thought leaders in the resilience uh, sustainability movement to design a program that we hope to roll out this year. So again, the students did all the work. We just filled the room with the, um, the con constituents. They facilitated the process, and their class project was to write the report. Net cost to me about 10 hours of staff time. Right? So just to put out there, like, don't look beyond um, these assets for you to work with. Um, now, the, neighbor, the Empower Communities Program. So our approach, and this is kind of like what we were talking about today earlier, which is we um, plan with people, not for them. Right? And this is uh, admittedly a big component of our program that people look at and try and wrap their brain around. But when we see a vulnerable community like the Bayview or the OMI, neighborhoods that we know have huge risk issues, but also incredibly vulnerable populations, we'll go into that neighborhood with our collective impact approach, and we'll spend three years in that community helping them create a resilient action plan and implementing it. And many of the community members that um, are working with us right here in the room today, could, could our community leads from our neighborhoods that we work in the city raise your hands so we acknowledge your work? Glenn, GL, Mark, Joni. John, we're, we're, we're going to get to you, but you're working in my neighborhood, right? So, so the bottom line is we've got some great um, neighborhood leaders that are, are donating literally thousands of hours of their time to help implement this program. So that's another amazing resource. I mean, I learn more from Joni Van Ryn every week 
doing the work we're doing in San Francisco, in, in Mira Loma Park, because she's applying her expertise in organizational development and management and team building. And now I think she's created some of those exciting trainings I've ever seen implemented um, within the NERT space, um, when she is the NERT lead in our community. Behind her is her husband, Guido Van Rin. He and I are knocking out this new program with Robert G next to him, something called the Block Champion Program. If they weren't you know, driving this and Guido putting in 10 hours a week, um, making this program happen, it wouldn't happen. So look beyond also the professionals and look at the people that are the retired professionals and realize, you know, we have one of the most educated populaces in the country here, many of whom are people that want to continue to contribute after they retire. Guess what? Give them something to work on, right? So again, mine these neighborhoods for these brilliant... Oh, there's Betsy Eddy over here at Diamond Heights. Oh, and there's Greg. And there, of course, is Jill Barovka in Diamond Heights. Again, Betsy coming out of the city doing emergency management planning in the city and now applying that in her neighborhood, right? So again, remember, the neighborhoods know more about their risks are, what their needs are, and often have the ability to contribute to that mission better than anybody you can hire. Um, with that, then we also say we actually design with people as well. So every system that we share with you right now was designed iteratively and reflectively with our neighborhood leaders, right? So to be very clear, we didn't have the budget to go hire a big consulting firm to come in and drop a binder on our desk and say, here's your, here's your million dollars worth of brilliance, you know, now go to work. We actually went out in neighborhoods, built the systems with them, and you know what we found out? Is that when they help build something, what do they do? They help implement it, right? So, and when people have a question like, well, where did this come from? So when we went to the Fruitvale neighborhood and, and talked to West Oakland as well, and they said, well, why should we listen to San Francisco? I'm like, well, don't listen to San Francisco. Listen to G.L. Hodge and Felicia Thibodeau from the Bayview and find out why they want to do this work. And because the people in West Oakland feel a similar social economic justice issue as the people from the Bayview, they were like, oh, well, if the Bayview built this, then maybe we should take a look at it. So it's also a powerful way to help people to onboard the system because they see their peers are involved. So we want to make sure things are scalable, duplicatable, and sustainable. We can't build systems that work in only one neighborhood. They need to work in all neighborhoods. And we also want to make sure that there's benefit for every stakeholder organization um, in the program. So, and most importantly, we want to basically make a point of uh, onboarding communities and building their resilience to the transfer of power, right? And I think we've all been talking about this today. If you have a vulnerable resident who's living in their home that has some kind of chronic condition, ultimately their ability to survive a disaster should reside with them. Because if they do the pre-work and make sure they have the resources they need and, and just need technical support um, and expertise and, and from their neighbors, then they're probably going to make it. But if we don't actually empower every resident to be able to have the opportunity to make that plan, then the truth is, is that when we show up afterwards, it's probably going to be a very difficult lift. So we want to transfer the power back to everybody um, in order to achieve that goal. Um, now we're in the Bayview. And GL, you want to come over and take a quick second and just uh, talk about this portion of it? Uh, GL Hodge was our founding partner in the Resilient Baby Initiative. So you can stay down there because you can see the slides, but it's the ones we did um, okay. from oh. the... How you doing this morning? So great to see so many faces from so many different areas. But the main thing that we were here to talk about is ground up resiliency. You can't do it without us. You can't do it for us. We have to do it. And if you don't do it, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the baby.
If you see here, here's our shipyard, one of the most polluted places that you could ever come to. But during this time, it was a bustle of the Bay Area. We had a lot of things going on there. The shipyard was building ships and at the same time polluting the area. And people came from all around, people from the south, people from the east, especially black people, came to get jobs, came for a new, new, a new world, a world that we wasn't depressed in, a world that we dealing with Jim Crow laws. This is what it was all about. We came to San Francisco to change our lives and make a better life for our kids. You see these areas here, these are the areas where we live that, but you can also see baby residents demand rights because we found out that we had a natural occurring asbestos area that we were staying in. The shipyards moved out and the, the pollution that was left there to those areas, our kids and stuff was dying of asthma, dying of different disease. They were trying to make a better way. You can see we started protesting on that. We even had a power plant down there that PG&E was there that was polluting our area, but we made a change. Look at the future now. We got construction going on down there. The community stood up and said we wasn't gonna have it anymore. We're not gonna let you tell us what to do. We wanna make sure that our areas are cleaned up to residential standards. We wanted to make sure that you, when these hazardous trucks was going in and out of our areas, cleaning up the area, that they were covered they wasn't just taking the waste and blowing it in the air and everything. But the community stopped this. Without the community, you couldn't do it. And now you see affordable housing in these areas down there and local hire, which was implemented in San Francisco, uh, that you had to hire people in the community in order to do the work in the community. And then had a standard set for how many percentage of the people that was gonna work on the project. I believe it was 40%. Our neighborhood, ready for anything, Resilient Bayview. Resilient Bayview is a group of nonprofit organizations, faith-based organizations, city organizations that came together, and we had to stand up and listen to Daniel talk for about 30 minutes without even taking a break. But uh, that's another story. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but once he quit talking, he started listening. He started to understand, how can I talk about disaster preparedness when I have kids getting shot every day on the street? How can I talk about disaster preparedness when I can't even eat or feed my kids? How can I talk about disaster preparedness when we have shootings in schools? So the thing is about resiliency and resiliency in your neighborhoods, it's about what's important to you. Get behind something that means something to you and then take those leaders that's in those communities and empower them. Take your monies and not put them in meetings and talking to people that don't even live in our communities. Take that money and put it into the community, to the people that love those communities, the people that are working in them communities every day so that they can take care of themselves. Once they take care of themselves, then we'll take care of you. When you come to our community trying to get back over the bridge and don't have a way to go, come let's stay at one of our churches, our congregations. Let us help you. This is what resiliency is all about. It's not about up here, it's about down here. And we try to keep it that way. So I wanna shed a little insight 
on something that just transpired in the Bayview and why we think this is the right approach. So you saw the shipyard um, in that, those images, and, and unfortunately, the U.S. Navy back in the day basically used its property as a hazmat site, basically. And a lot of people don't know that, but a lot of nuclear materials went through these shipyards. Um, some of them are still there or have been remediated. Uh, and the bottom line is a lot of the people that were brought out to work in these shipyards were allowed to live in these neighborhoods after they shut down the shipyard. Little did they know that down the street when the dust blew, it was blowing all these materials up into their homes. And that's why we saw these high cancer rates and asthma rates and things that, frankly, people were complaining about. Well, now we know why. But let me explain to you why this program just went through a serious test. And I'm excited to say that we're still marching forward. The government has paid millions of dollars to clean up the shipyard. Millions of dollars. And hired a, um, a firm called TetraTech to test the soil to verify that it had successfully cleaned the soil so people could now move in the neighborhood and build housing. It was just revealed that that firm possibly falsified upwards of 90% of the soil samples that were taken. So think about this, though. If this was a top-down preparedness initiative going on in the Bayview, and the same people that said, we, you can trust us to clean up the mess we created, and we're going to spend millions of dollars, and you can now live here safely. Imagine then when the news comes out about something like that, how many people would really want to continue to trust us to be the one that stewards their resilience after disaster? I know I wouldn't. And so I just want to honor um, GL's leadership and a myriad of other folks, and Felicia Tibabo will be here well, because the bottom line is they're the face of resilience in that neighborhood. We support them, but when you come to our meetings and our events, they get up and lead the meetings, and they're the ones that do the presentations, right? And we simply are playing our position, which is support. And so I just want to offer that for those of you that do this work, because sometimes when you go into a neighborhood and you're trying to do your business, some other department drops the ball, well, guess what? You all get the same paycheck, your program goes sideways. These programs are frankly uh, uh, free of that because the community owns it, so they keep working, right? And so I just want to give you some idea of why that, this approach is an insurance policy because sometimes government, even though we have the best of intentions, we may not get it right, but the work can't stop. So this is a way to create that firewall around the work. Um, so with that, what's our investment strategy? And we were talking a little bit about this last night. So we work on capacity, connection, and resources, right? We invest in all three of those. It's a good 401k, right? So the bottom line is, is that we work at all three of those levels at all times because you need all three of those levels in order to succeed during times of stress. We also focus on this model here, which is that we look, we, first we focus on the individual, right? Let's make her as happy and healthy and connected as possible every day. Because happy, healthy, connected people do pretty well in disasters, don't they? Right? So that's our goal. But we realize that's not where the line, that's not the goal line. The goal line then, though, is to talk about, let's engage her immediate social network, her friends, her families, her neighbors, and say, do you know this person? Do you care about this person? Do you realize that she's in a, a wheelchair that runs on battery, but she lives in a three-story building? That battery is going to run out if the electricity turns off. Do you know how to carry someone like that out of a building? Or do you know how to provide them auxiliary support? In, in Hurricane Sandy, a friend of mine was in the lower Manhattan, and she was in an apartment building, and 
within hours of the power going off, she could hear people that were in their wheelchairs screaming for help because their batteries had died and they couldn't get around their unit, right? So the bottom line is, is that the immediate social network we want to make sure is a, a connected to her resilience. Then where do they live? Is, the, is the, the apartment they live in going to support their mission as well, right? And this is something we're dealing right now with heat waves is we're finding out in San Francisco that it's getting hotter every year. And guess what? None of our buildings have air conditioning in them that we live in, right? Because we built our housing for 1960 weather, not 2025 weather. And so we actually had a lethal heat wave last year for the first time ever, two days of over 100 degree temperatures. And we lost six residents, at least six residents in their homes because they didn't, um, weren't able to manage the heat. And the tragedy is not only did they die, but because of the impact of heat, and we can talk more about this another time, they lost their cognitive ability to call for help, and none of them called 911, right? So again, if their social network isn't watching them and checking on them, they may not be able to defend themselves. So what's the outcome, right? So we want to talk about getting the built environment caught up. We also want to talk about the larger civic network, and that's neighborhood associations and neighborhood groups that steward the community, but get them to look back and, and check on these folks. And then lastly, we want to talk about our civic networks and the agencies and organizations that are set up to care for these folks as well. So what does that look like from a program standpoint? Well, we want to go into neighborhoods and set up something called a hub. And a hub is a place-based network of community-serving organizations that work together every day on their individual resilience and their collective ability to respond to times of stress. Here's what a hub looks like um, pre-event. So in the center, you have an anchor institution. So in the city, we have anchor institutions such as the Bayview YMCA. Um, we have Providence Baptist Church. We have, in every neighborhood, we actually identify a civic institution. In Miraloma Park, it's the Miraloma Park Improvement Club. So it doesn't have to be a building-based organization. It could be a social uh, civic network as well. The other agencies in that network come together, and they actually form the, the rest of the hub. And so those are the hub members. These are agencies that are committed to the mission of resilience but maybe can't fulfill the anchor institution role. In the outer ring, then, we have what we call our, um, our block champion network, right? And this is a new program we're developing, which is about, at the block level, getting individuals to lean forward on the mission of preparedness. Now, the reason why you have a little people in here is because, as Dennis Maletti will say, you really only change your behavior after you're hearing the same information from three trusted sources. So if the pastor at a church in the Bayview tells the residents, you need to get ready, if the soccer coach or the basketball coach of the Baby YMCA tells the parents you need to get ready, right? And they see GL Hodge on the corner telling them to get ready, the science has shown there's an 80% chance that they'll be likely to get ready. Now, having the Baby YMCA at the table is amazing. Why? Because 3,600 people walk through their front door every week. Who's a better person to influence their behavior? Me driving around the neighborhood with a bullhorn or the staff of the YMCA? So that's why we need to onboard these agencies, because pre-event, they could be our engine for preparedness. Now, post-event, this is what we want to do. We're going to activate something called a NEOC in the neighborhood, and we're training our organizations to participate, kind of like what you guys did today, and that is how they can come together and modify their mission, but still continue to meet the needs of the neighborhood until the official big response agencies arrive, right? Meanwhile, out in the, in the block level, we now have our block champions opening up block support centers, and that's where Guido and John and I and Robert and Joni were sitting Monday night talking about the implementation plan when the earthquake struck. Um, 
And so the bottom line is we're really excited about this program, and we, we look forward to launching that um, downstream. Um, so that's basically the model as we look at it. Now, what happens is the first thing we do is we go into a neighborhood and we asset map the neighborhood. So this is one of the tools we have called Map Your, map Your Resilientville. And here we look at the neighborhood through the lens of where are all these resources in the neighborhood and who owns them? And then we also say, who works with the vulnerable populations in this community? How can we partner with them to get them prepared for times of stress? So we take those actors and we then bring them into the table to talk about our program moving forward. We then run the annual tabletop exercise, which all of you participated in, because I don't know about you, but San Francisco's got a bit of a gentrification problem. And it's not only residents, but it's the leadership of our CBOs as well. And so what happens is you bring everyone together after a fire and five years in the past, and you're like, we're all on the same page now. Well, guess what? Over the last five years, 40% of those people no longer work in the community. So if you don't keep bringing those people together and, and convening them and letting the five new CBO members meet everyone else, then you probably aren't as ready as you think you are. And so that's one of the powers of that exercise. And so with that, right now, we have eight neighborhoods running this program. But what's exciting is we're onboarding four new neighborhoods. Um, this year, right now, the Western Edition uh, is one of the key neighborhoods we're focused on right now. And also what's exciting is we have actually two neighborhoods which has secured grants to bring this program in the neighborhood. So they're actually out fundraising to launch this program in their own community. And one of those is gonna be the West Portal community, which has already practically written their plan. They haven't even got a nickel yet. So, uh, and I wanna thank Joni Van Rin for helping them get up and running because the big lift they wanna focus on is CERT and making sure they have a CERT team to help manage the uh, activity in their community. And Joni's providing technical support to them on that process as well. And again, how exciting to have Joni step into a leadership role in our neighborhood, and now three years later, she's volunteering and mentoring other neighborhoods to emulate what she's accomplished. How great is that? What's the budget hit on that, Bob? Zero, right? So I hope one day to be able to sit back and listen for a change and just fill this room up once a month and have all the Jonies and the Libbies and the Roberts come together and actually just drive this program and we can get out of the way. So I just want to thank all of them for their leadership on that. So we'll close on that. Thanks to our friends at USGS. We know where it will happen. We know who will be impacted. And we know who the first responders are going to be. And it's all of you. So let's get to work. Thank you very much, everyone. Daniel Holmesy, Director of the Neighborhood Empowerment Network, here today at San Francisco City Hall for the 2018 Bay Area Regional Summit on Community Resilience. An amazing group of people have come together here at City Hall today to talk about this important issue. We literally have people from all over the Bay Area, Los Angeles, and even people from Canada to come and talk about this important issue. Now, today we have a keynote address by Professor Daniel Aldrich from Northeastern University, focusing on the essential role that social cohesion plays in building truly resilient communities. So take a minute, sit back, and hear what this brilliant man has to say about this important approach. Who's ever had an aha moment, right? 
an aha moment. Like the people, how many, all of you are Bitcoin millionaires. So you, you, you had, that was that aha moment, right? But I remember on a Muni train, um, probably six or seven years ago, I downloaded this white paper and it was on the power of social cohesion and disaster recovery. And I'm reading this article and as you can imagine, some people, when I get going, look at me a little bit like, I see a real powerful combination of Ritalin and some kind of set, you know, uh, that, that would really help you succeed. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. Like, I'm an idiot on fire. Like, I know we need to do this work. But there was a remarkable little data out there that really articulated the power, quantitative and qualitatively, of the social cohesion aspect of disaster preparedness. It was all about kits, kits, kits. And I'm like, I don't think that's the solution. I think it's about connection and then the kits come into play, right? And I downloaded this white paper and I was on the Muni heading downtown and I started reading Daniel's work and I got so excited, I, I couldn't read anymore. Like I was just like, I couldn't even get to page two. I'm like, this is the holy grail, right? This is it. And so since then, Dan and I have built this great partnership, but I just wanna offer that this gentleman here has done more to help the community resilience space from an academic side than anyone else I know. And, and he'll share more with you about his work. But the bottom line is, is that we need his voice in the room so that people will take our passion seriously, if you know what I mean by that. So I'm excited for you to hear about his work because for me, it is the one um, data point I point to all the time saying, so if you think I'm wrong, then explain to him why he's wrong and he'll explain to you why that's impossible. <laughs> and the lightning rod for Dan Homsey. Thank you. So first of all, thank you all so much. I know lunch is next. It's a hard point to be in the, in the day. But, um, you know, this for me be, began actually even in 2005. Uh, we had moved down to New Orleans, Louisiana. And we had about six really good weeks there in New Orleans. We had a new house, a new car, filled our home with furniture. And then, of course, on the 28th of August, we had the arrival of Hurricane Katrina, which really changed your perspective when you lose your job, the things that you own, you and your family were evacuated out of the city to Houston. So we began thinking about this from a personal perspective. What will it take for us to bounce back? Back at the time we had two little kids, now we have four. Probably a mistake, but that's a different question. And, and you know, we saw around us this idea of what will it take for our home, our neighborhood, our city to recover if it in fact can recover over time. All the literature out there talks about infrastructure about housing and buildings and kits and all that kind of stuff. And that seemed interesting to some degree, but didn't match what we saw, right? In fact, I tried to map what we saw. This map you see, it's kind of hard to see from where you're sitting, is a map of New Orleans. And that map of New Orleans has on it thousands of interviews that we did with people around the city. And we asked them a very simple question. In the years since Hurricane Katrina, how are you doing? How is the recovery process going for you? Then we asked them how much water was in their home and their business, where they lived. And if you could see this map, you'd notice something very interesting. I assumed individuals with more water in their homes, with more damage to their businesses, would tell us things are going very badly. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, you see some of the best recoveries are in some of the worst hit areas in the city. I began to think then, if resilience isn't a function of damage, What's driving this process over time? Why did some people tell us things were going well for them despite having 12 feet of water in their home for two months? If there's one takeaway message from all the work I've done since then, it's the following idea. 
that what drives resilience, what drives recovery, isn't going to come from a kit. It's not going to come from an outside speaker like me. It won't come from someone like Dan Holmesy. It'll come from you and your communities and your neighbors. Whom do you know? Whom do you trust? Whom do you work with? Over and over again, we see that what really drives the process is having connections. And there are three types of connections we can talk about. Bonding ties, bridging ties, and linking ties. Bonding ties are between friends, family, kin, people who are quite similar already. But bridging ties bring people together, maybe through a sports club, through a church, a synagogue, a mosque. Maybe they come together through a meeting like this one. And finally, linking ties are vertical ones between me and someone in FEMA, between you and the mayor. These different types of ties play different roles in this disaster space as bad things happen to us. The first choice that we have to make after a disaster is whether or not to go back to that damaged home, that damaged business, and to rebuild, or if we move someplace else. We found around the world what drives the processes of leaving, of exit, often is not a question of money, but a question of connection. If you feel connected to your home, if you feel you have friends and family nearby, if you feel driven to live there, this is where you want to be, it doesn't matter how much it will cost. It doesn't matter how much time it will take or the gap between insurance and the actual costs of rebuilding. That sense of belonging will bring us home no matter what. In contrast, if you feel betrayed by leaders, if you don't have trust with people living nearby, if you don't have a sense of neighborhoods, then coming back will be a very costly and unlikely process for you. We call this exit or voice. And we've found over and over again around the world, individuals with connections, they use voice. They work together to rebuild their communities. And people who don't feel connected, those individuals often use exit instead. We also know many of the challenges that we face post-disaster are what we call collective action challenges. They require people working together. No one family, no one organization, no one can do it by themselves. To rebuild, to bring back property values, to bring back schools, bring back businesses, they require us all working together. That's much easier in communities where we have trust and connections and we have experience working together. It's much harder to get collective action if you don't trust your neighbors, if you don't trust your first responders, if you don't trust the local government there with you in that place where you live. So all of these collective action problems, rebuilding, debris removal, building back organizations, they require us to work together as a community. The last way we see these ties working is what we call informal insurance or mutual aid. As we heard already, after disasters, most providers of medical care, of help, of information, of food, water, and gasoline, they're shut down for days, if not weeks. How do we find someone to help us if we don't know anyone nearby? If the daycare is closed, who'll be watching my kids? If there's no gasoline nearby, how do I get to work? And we see around the world, whether in San Francisco, in Boston, in India, or in Japan, what drives us getting help and resources come from people living nearby that we know, that we trust, that we've worked with. This is not a formal insurance program where you pay in. This is an informal insurance where you've built trust and relationships over time. If you haven't built those before the disaster, it's much harder afterwards to draw on them and get those kind of assistance that we'll need. This is all kind of abstract right now. I'm gonna give us some real information. We've already mentioned that seven years ago, 
in Japan, there were three massive disasters at the exact same time. We had a 9.0 earthquake at 2.46 p.m. on the 11th of March, 2011. That earthquake then triggered a massive tsunami, a huge wall of water 60 feet tall in some places. And those two together then shut down nuclear power plants at Fukushima. And that itself caused meltdowns at three of the reactors. So imagine not only do you have an earthquake and a tsunami, you also have radioactive contamination going on. And my job the last six years now has been studying these aspects of Japan and how they did or didn't recover. We noticed immediately that across cities and towns in Tohoku, where the earthquake and tsunami hit, the levels of mortality, the levels of people dying were quite different. In some cities, no one passed away. In some areas, as many as one in 10 people died in that wave. What drove that difference? Why did some communities have the ability to have so many people survive? Others were literally decimated. One in 10 died. We first imagined what would drive that would be the power of the wave. Maybe communities hit by higher waves would higher, have higher mortality. Just like in New Orleans, that wasn't the case. In fact, we had many communities with lower waves with higher mortality. So why did some communities then have higher or lower mortality? We looked first to test five different theories you hear about all the time. Different ideas of what connects mortality and disasters. The most obvious, of course, is the power of the disaster. I think now we've shown that not to be the case. It's not that a more powerful disaster results in more mortality. We also looked closely at politics. Could political assistance, for example, from a certain party in power make a difference in pre preparation and more spending beforehand? We looked at earthquake preparation and disaster preparation. We looked at the amount of money spent on things like seawalls. We looked at demographics as well. And finally, we looked at social ties and social cohesion. What kind of connections were there in the city? What kind of abilities we have people to trust each other? The best driver of recovery and survival in Tohoku didn't come from demographics, didn't come from spending. It came from trust and cohesion. Those communities in Japan, in the 140 towns and villages along the coast that had those higher levels of trust, they had lower levels of mortality. In similar communities nearby that had less trust, less interaction, those communities had more dead bodies afterwards, holding everything else constant. So again, the first stage of recovery being driven by these horizontal ties. This image now is the city of Ishinomaki, taken two weeks and then two years after disaster. And if you can see the image, in one there's debris, there's bicycles and cars on the ground. In the other image, two years later, all that's gone. But you know what we don't know? We don't know if these communities have recovered. Have they bounced back after those two years? This is a similar city called Sendai, the community of Tagajo. And there is two weeks, two years, and then two years ago. I can't explain why those white vans are still there over time. Maybe insurance fraud, but that's a different discussion. But we see in these communities that as debris is being removed, we don't really know. Are businesses back up again? Are schools operating? Are people back in their homes again? What kind of connections are driving these? And again, we tested across a number of different theories. The best driver of recovery, of building back afterwards, came from having connections to decision makers, came from trust and interactions with people in positions of power those linking kind of ties. 
where during the disaster, what drove survival came from horizontal connections. In the longer term, the process of recovery came from vertical ties. One more project that we've been working on has come about mental health over time. How do we know what's going to drive people's ability to stay calm, focused, free of anxiety after a major disaster like an earthquake, or in this case, a tsunami and also a radioactive meltdown? We had lots of theories about what could drive this. We've been very lucky working with a community that lived less than 20 kilometers, about 16 miles from the plant itself. And over the last six years, we've asked them questions every year. What's helping you stay calm? How do you ameliorate these feelings of worry, of anxiety, about cancer, about long-term health outcomes? We had a number of different theories about this. What we've seen is individuals exposed to radiation had far higher levels of concern than similar individuals with less of those exposure. In fact, their levels of concern are about two and a half times greater than the average person living in Japan right now. That means they can't sleep at night. They have problems focusing during the day. They have the symptoms that we would call PTSD. But what's kept these symbols down, what's allowed them to get by, haven't been things like wealth or health. Being very, very wealthy or very, very physically healthy didn't reduce concerns and anxiety. Can you imagine what was the best predictor of mental health over time? Social connections. What we found was individuals who knew their neighbors, who had more ties to people living or nearby, who had this sense of belonging, those individuals were able to get through this massive disaster and feel calm, feel less anxiety over time. Now, for us, the bigger question was, in vulnerable populations, among the elderly, among the disabled, what can we do as individuals who live nearby, as individuals who are there, to make that community a pillar of strength, to make that community the driving force within the area? So we had a project that we called Ibasho. Ibasho in Japanese means my place. And the idea was very simple. We knew in communities in Japan that the elderly had been through disasters before. Some of them had been through World War II, others through past earthquakes and tsunami. We wanted to draw on their resources, to draw on their strength, and use them as a, an engine for recovery. So we asked them, if we helped them build a space there in their community post-disaster, would they take management, would they take control and create programs that would bring people together to help build trust and build connections over time. It took about six months for them to say yes and two more years to get working. But I can report to you now in 2018, this has been an incredibly successful program with the elderly members of a community called Masakicho in Japan. In fact, it's been so successful, we now have pilot projects in Nepal and in the Philippines as well. These are programs where we help provide a community space, an open space in the area. Those local elderly then decide what kind of programs they run, whether it's going to be yoga, whether it's a library for the children nearby, whether it's programs on cooking, or simply a space to meet together afterwards. We've been fortunate now to be able to test the community before, during, and after this program. We have measurable impacts in a number of different areas. Individuals going into this community feel more of a sense of place, that feeling of obligation and connection, and they also have more social ties. They have more friends they speak with every single day. So I tried to argue today that at different stages in the disaster, social ties, social cohesion, is the most important aspect of what we can build deliberately. Of course we can build floating houses, of course we can build seawalls, we can all have our emergency kits, and those are very important. But more important, I would argue, in the processes of getting through disaster 
and then bouncing back afterwards are the kind of connections that we have in our neighborhoods. Do we have trust with each other? Do we have trust in first responders? I try to argue that in the first stage of survival, having horizontal connections, having people that we know nearby, helps people survive. We have stories, literally, of people being carried to safety on the backs of their neighbors, of individuals checking on people in the 40 minutes between the earthquake and the arrival of the tsunami to make sure that they were safe or if they weren't to get them to safety. We know that in the process of rebuilding these cities in Japan that have been destroyed in many cases completely, what they needed to have were vertical ties, ties to decision makers, ties to individuals like the NEN network here in San Francisco, ties to people like Dan Homsey, like Brian Strong, ties to FEMA and the Red Cross. Those ties help them activate local resources. Then in the longer term, how do we make sure those individuals feel connected to the community and feel calmness? Again, those processes are being driven not by a physical infrastructure, but by a social one. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions. Please, yeah, so any yeah. questions for my esteemed colleague? Any questions? Show of hands? Okay, here, oh, here we go. Certain house, here we go. Stand up, please. Carrie Devzak, City of Berkeley. So what are your suggestions when we have these new communities that are um, a combination? I mean, in Japan, we see a very homogenous type of population. Ours is, does not look anything like that. It's a great question. So in fact, we were lucky to begin in Japan, but now we have projects in the Philippines, in Boston, in New Zealand, and in India and Israel as well. And what we found is it doesn't really matter how homogenous the population is. Social ties can be created in the same way that we can create financial wealth through education, the same way that we can create social ties through work. So we actually have five different programs that we've tested. The first one we call the Mr. Rogers program. Hopefully you guys know Mr. Rogers from your childhoods, I hope. Okay, good. So when I was a kid, every single day, Mr. Rogers asked me to be a good neighbor. And the reality is, if I ask this room right now, how many of you know the first and last name of 10 neighbors? I hope a lot of you would raise your hands, I hope. But the sad reality is, in San Francisco and Boston and in Mumbai, less than one in eight people knows that number of neighbors. In metropolitan areas, no matter whether it's homogenous or heterogeneous, we simply don't know who lives next to us. So right now, for example, in New Zealand, we have programs we're doing to get you to know your neighbor. Very simple idea because they're the zero responders. Before the FEMA, before Red Cross gets there, we need to have people living nearby. So that's the first stage. The second stage we call the neighborhood level. And here you actually have projects in San Francisco like NeighborFest. The idea is individuals who may not meet regularly, individuals who may only meet through a PTA meeting or through a local meeting, wouldn't have that time together. So NeighborFest is one way we do this at the community level. We also talk about design and urban planning. So many of our communities lack parks, third places, places where individuals can get together between work and home to meet each other and chat. So right now, for example, in Israel and in Japan, we're designing new condominiums that have private living spaces, but shared working and shared eating spaces. The idea is to build a community that literally has spaces to build together. We also have been working on issues more broadly like, how do you get individuals to go to meetings? How do you get them out of their homes, away from their screens, and out to a PTA meeting, to a zoning board meeting, to a local school board meeting? And we're finding that very simple tweaks can make a big difference. For example, do we offer childcare? 
When are the meetings being offered? Are there multiple times that we could have it during the workday and afterwards? Do we have food for people to come? Do they feel a part of the process? So we're trying to change the meetings themselves to increase that belief that these meetings are for them and by them. One last argument we've tried has been time banking and community currency. These are programs that reward individuals who leave their homes and go volunteer. They do so and are given some kind of reward. It could be a five Berkeley dollars or five Ithaca dollars. It could be one hour in a time bank. And that resource can be exchanged then. I will volunteer for an hour at a school and get back five Berkeley dollars. That money will only work at local mom and pop stores, at a farmer's market, at a barber shop. But we found in all these five programs increases in trust and cohesion regardless of the level of homogeneity in the community. Totally agree with what you're saying. Those are the things that Resilientville is about, Resilient Bayview. We want to take some of the monies that you have for the community and give that to the community, those community leaders to work with other people in their community. Because if we don't build these relationships now, we aren't going to build them after the major catastrophe. What we want to do is make sure that the community can take care of themselves. Once they take care of themselves, we can take care of everybody else that comes to our community because every community is not going to be devastated. It's going to hit in different areas. And if we take those people that's already working at the food pantries, the food banks, the ones that's already in the senior homes and make sure that they are identified, they're taken care of, then they can take care of everybody else. If we can have cooling centers in communities that don't have cooling centers, that are some of the hottest communities in this city, then we can save those lives. And if we don't Hold build it. those relationships before it happens, then we're going to have more death after it happens. Exactly. Question over here, Professor. Or Daniel Holmesy right here, me. Here we go. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much. This was actually... Um, a wonderful presentation and not particularly surprising. Um, what I'm actually interested in is your thoughts about in the new electronic social media age where everybody's tied to their screens. And especially in San Francisco, we have the breakdown of the nuclear family or community and we're into the high rises with the 20 some, the millennials or even a little older folks who are completely disengaged, and they're here one day, they may be moving to Houston five years from now, or wherever the next tech boom is. How do we gauge those communities that are incredible social capital, but at the same time, they don't have a connection or roots in the area? This is a really big challenge in tech boom cities like San Francisco, like Boston as well. You also didn't mention the high house cost of, of, of housing here, right, which is also driving out individuals who should be on the front lines, right, with us when we hit a disaster. So th there's no easy answer, I think, as you all know, if you live here. But one approach would be, I think we heard earlier in the day, that when we frame this idea, not as disaster preparedness, not as have your kit and be ready for a bad thing, but look at the good things that we're doing already. Look what our community already has internally. Look at the strengths that we have here, and here's how we want you to be a part of it, right? If my neighbor knocks on my door, it'll be different than if Dan Holmesy, whom I like, will knock on my door, right? We want someone who lives nearby to say to me, Daniel, you have skills that we need, please come join us. Well, your kids already play in the park. Get on the parks committee, right? Your wife is at the YMCA, come join the YMCA board. We want you to talk about zoning here? Is there fair housing for your kids when they grow up to come back to the area? I think part of the challenge for us in these organizations on the edge of disaster 
is the framework that we have in mind is always talking about the doom and gloom, right? The negative things that can come. I think the really cool thing about social capital and social cohesion is we can flip that around and say, here's the benefits we'll get right now. When you know your neighbor and they can watch your house and you're gone for a week, wouldn't you feel more reserved than having some camera on your door all the time? Right? If there is a fire nearby, wouldn't you want neighbors who come to get you out rather than wonder if you're actually living there or not? So these are the kind of things to flip that around. Talking to people who are young or old, the screen thing is one quick side thing on this. We found actually, oftentimes nowadays, social media use corresponds with civic engagement. It sounds weird, I know. Um, but what we found is there are different ways to be using your phone, right? If you're on it right now, texting, bad on you. But if you're on it right now, tweeting to friends, telling Facebook about this, buying my book, for example, right? Then we know that the outcome is about social connections. And actually, two of my students are doing this as the research projects. We found communities in California during the Napa Valley earthquake that were more online and engaged online civically also got involved in planning and work afterwards in the community nearby. So it wasn't that I'm either on my screen or I'm seeing you face to face. If we use social media and the, and the networks that we have properly, those could be really beneficial leverages for increasing our ties. We have time for one more question. A new voice, new voice. Oh, Daniel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, my name's Ada and I volunteer for Red Cross. What's very interesting is we need a platform like this. We need someone like Daniel Holmesy who sticks his neck out and says, hey you, you got a talent. Because each one of us, we think we have nothing to offer. We have nothing at the table. But you do, you do have something. And then sometimes you, you might be, you know, not capable of doing a lot of things. You're sitting in a wheelchair and you go, what do I have to offer? If I'm blind or if I'm deaf, I'm going, what do I have to offer? You don't know until you come to something like this. And then you go, hey, you're like me. And then you go, maybe I can offer you something because you don't have that sensitivity. Well, maybe I fed people and you don't know what it takes to open a shelter and feed people. Maybe you don't know about access, and you know, only Hodges knows what people in his community needs. You might come and you're straight laced, you're dressed up, I'm a businessman. I know about computers, I know what to teach you. No, we know what to help you help us. So you need a place like this. And that's why when you said socialize, the more we socialize, in this type of gathering, the more we know, hey, you can help me. And the more we will think, maybe I can come over and say, hey, Leah, Turk, what is, what, where do you work? And who do you work for? Or I'll go up to Christy and say, what can AT&T do for resilience? But otherwise, if we don't have a place like this, and you don't show up to places like this, you'll never know what you know today. So that's why socializing is so important. And who knows, you might be alive after an earthquake and we'll all be alive together. Because you know what? If I'm Mary Cross and my group is all here and there's none of you guys around, that's not a community. It's a lone wolf sitting there going, who can I save? But there's no one to save. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Orchid. I am deaf and I'm uh, representing the deaf community, partly. 
uh, in terms of you know the Bay Area, there are very you know many isolated communities. For example, when there are fires in the North Bay, uh, there was a family of three with a young child. The parents were deaf uh, and asleep. They got up. They smelled you know smoke, and they only had ten minutes to pack everything in, in leave. There was nobody coming to their house to knock or alert them that they needed to uh, escape. So the entire system failed them. And so that's one example. And there's another family that was deaf. Uh, while they were asleep, the first responders came in and there was no communication and the family was very shocked. They didn't understand why the person was in their home. And and I don't feel it, it's like a, a statement of us being disconnected from the community. I think it's the general community has stepped away from their connection and awareness with people with disabilities. I think communities of disability are very open and willing to work, but there's a, a real breakdown between the able-bodied community and the disabled community. And I think the emphasis, it seems, is that we need to take care of ourselves first. I think one thing, and I appreciate the remarks from our colleague um, at the Red Cross, is during different, remember there's the mitigation phase, there's the preparedness phase, there's a response phase, restoration and recovery phases. Different people have the ability to contribute during different phases. If we only focus on people that we think can help us during the response phase, we don't get it. So I don't care what uh, is perhaps you have whatever um, access functional need you have or whatever your perception is about what that term means. The bottom line is this. If you can sit at a table and communicate directly or indirectly in any way, shape, or form about how the community can help you and how you can help your community, then you should be at the planning phase without any doubt. There's no excuse, right? And so I think that's what the, the, the mark was. Everybody can contribute in any way, shape, anyone. There are very few reasons why people may not be able to organize a block party, right? As long as you can be present and communicate and, and lead, right? So I do want to put out there that, you know, like two years ago we had a heat wave in San Francisco and my father almost died. Um, and it was, his, his, his sister died in 99 in a heat wave. And then um, when the heat wave struck, my sister and I were both in emergency management. We're literally talking to him every hour, trying to make sure he's drinking enough water, but he accidentally took a um, Claritin and dehydrated and went upstairs to his bedroom, which is the hottest room in the house, and fell over and lied there for 12 hours. And if his neighbor didn't come over and check on him in the morning um, and take him to the hospital, he would have died. And my dad's, you know, 92 now at home recovering from a heart attack. And, you know, you would have been like, oh, well, that's because the young person is able-bodied and my dad is vulnerable and that's the paradigm that exists. And in the case of the heat wave, that's what happened. Three months later, my dad, um, an avid hot tubber since 1972, uh, since we built our first hot tub in our backyard, was in his hot tub at 2.30 in the morning because, of course, he sleeps four hours a day, right? Um, and he heard this popping sound. And he, sat, he, he stood out of the hot tub, he looked over the backyard, we have a little fence, and the same neighbor who had saved him, his house was on fire. And not only was the house on fire, but the, the wall underneath his bedroom 
had caught fire because the coals had blown off of the barbecue and set fire to the shingles. And so my dad hops up at that point, about 89 years of age, runs down, grabs a fire hose, and is putting out the fire and wakes my 50-year-old friend up who then evacuated his 90-year-old mother and got out of harm's way. And I share that story with you because we need to get out of this paradigm of who, can, who is able to do something, who's not able to do something. And, and my dad demonstrated that because in a way, they were even after that, right? And so the joke was my dad bought him a six-pack after he took him to the hospital, and then my buddy bought him a six-pack after he saved his life. So I just want to offer that everybody can be the hero, a hero, or a hero to themselves. But I think we need to create that, that platform, and that's what you were talking about, for them to make that contribution. So I just wanted to close on that because I do think we need to stop looking at people and pigeonholing them and saying, no matter what happens, you're going to be a victim. That is actually not the case. So I just wanted to honor her remarks and her remarks because it's very important that we not fall into that trap. And that's what I think today is all about. So thank you very much for coming, Orchid, and my colleagues at the Red Cross. Daniel Holmesy, Director of the Neighborhood Empowerment Network here at San Francisco City Hall for the 2018 Bay Area Regional Summit on Community Resilience. What an amazing group of people have come together here today to talk about this incredibly important issue with a big emphasis on equity. That's why we have a panel today, an all-star lineup, focusing on advancing equity in our mission of resilience. Leading that panel will be Felicia Thibodeau, Program Manager for Resilient Bayview, Chris Iglesias, CEO of the Unity Council, lead person on Resilient Fruit Vale. Vance Taylor, the chief of Cal OES's Access and Functional Needs Office. And last but not least, Megan Rohr, Pastor Megan Rohr. She's the pastor for the SFPD and runs a congregation in the Sunset. Incredibly passionate and has an amazing track record for empowering homeless individuals and achieving their resilience goals. Let's take a minute and find out what these true leaders are doing in, to advance their mission and what we can learn and, and onboard into our own individual work. Good morning and thank you. Well, good afternoon, actually. And um, thank you for being present. I'm Felicia Tipido. I serve many roles here in San Francisco. One as the executive director of IT Bookman Senior Center, the program manager for Resilient Bayview, and I'm the intake coordinator for Healthy Retail. Amazing enough, all of these do work together under the umbrella of serving the vulnerable population which this panel is talking about engagement into the vulnerable populations, seniors, persons with access and functional needs, and what else do we have? I'm sorry, I could...
anyone that you feel is not able to live its life 100% during, before, during, and post-disasters are who we consider vulnerable population. And more importantly is, why is it important to outreach to this community, and how do you implement those outreach strategies to become effective during a time of stress? So I'd like my panel to introduce themselves, and then we'll start by asking a couple of questions. Good afternoon. Um, my name's uh, Chris Iglesias. I'm the CEO of the Unity Council, located in the Fruitvale District of, Oak, of East Oakland. And I'm just glad to be here um, for a lot of reasons. One, I used to work for the city of San Francisco for 20 years, so I just missed this building, and my office was upstairs. And, um, I, and I, but I, I do want to acknowledge, I think Daniel mentioned it earlier, the, um, the loss of uh, Ed Lee, um, or Mayor Lee, who is a you know, a friend, I worked with him for many, many years. And I was actually, I was looking up some of my notes from 1986, and that's when Willie Brown became mayor, and he was requiring a lot of the department heads to move back in the city, and Ed lived in Oakland. And I was looking for a house, and so he offered, he's like, hey, why don't you buy my house? And I looked at my notes, and, it, and I think he was selling it for like 180,000, three bedroom, one bath house. And, and he goes, I'll give you a deal for like 170 or 160. I'm like, Ed, I'm a compliance officer. I mean, that's like, that's outrageous. How could you do that to me? I didn't end up buying it. We ended up finding a place in the city. But yeah, I just, we really miss him. He's a, he was a great man. I'm Pastor Megan Rohr. I'm the pastor at Grace Lutheran in the Sunset. I've also worked with the homeless and hungry here in San Francisco for about 14 years. Um, have done a lot of work and advocacy in the LGBTQ community and identify as transgender. And I'm also a chaplain for the San Francisco Police Department, if that wasn't all enough. Hi, my name is Vance Taylor. I'm the chief of the Office of Access and Functional Needs at Cal OES. Our role is essentially to identify what are the needs that anybody with a disability or an access or functional need has before during or after disaster. And once we've identified what that is, we integrate it within everything we do in the emergency management systems of California at the state and local levels with our public and private partners. So, so I'm delighted to be here. So as you can see, we have faith-based LGBTQ, we have homeless, access and functional needs, and also resilient Fruitvale, which is like resilient Bayview, we look to act, um, explore issues around disasters as well as what happens in community and how we tie all of this together to better serve our community. So the first question I um, have for the panel is what are the benefits of outreaching to the specific um, population group that each of you represent. You want to start? Sure. So, um, you know, we're located in the Fruitvale, and I should have probably said a little bit more about the Unity Council. So we're a 54-year-old um, social equity development corporation. So we're working with um, children, you know, basically prenatal. Our, our largest programs are Head Start, Early Head Start. So we, you know, we're working with almost 800 families just through Head Start. We have four senior housing developments. So we house several hundred um, low-income seniors throughout the Fruitvale District, um, youth programs, real estate, so we do a little bit of, of everything. Resiliency is um, kind of new to us. 
And it really started on, I think for us, and the, the, the intention and, and really get into this work on December 2nd, 2016, um, when the ghost ship fire happened. The ghost ship is um, right you know, smack in the middle of the fruit vale, right next to us. And you know, it really had a profound impact on not only all the folks that lost their lives that night, but I think the fruit vale in general. And you know, from that day on, it was, um, there was just so much happening in the fruit vale. And people were coming to us from all kind of different angles about wanting to help and you know, do things and, 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 and kind of, you know, what do you do to prevent this? And the folks that really came first were the Red Cross. And um, I never worked with the Red Cross and those, those folks were pretty intense, right? I mean, they were like really, like they were like overwhelming. And I was just like, whoa, you guys got to just slow your roll and let us kind of uh, breathe a little bit and understand what's, how to work with you guys. So I didn't know anybody, but I did know Harold Brooks. And Harold and I and GL Hodge went on this trip to Israel um, about five years ago. So I, I called Harold right away and said, you know, hey, I, I need some help. I need some advice on how to work with these red folks. Uh, Red Cross folks, and he's like, well, I'm retired, but I'll still help you, and, and he did, and um, I, like, again, things were happening so fast, I, and I remember, like, maybe it was probably two weeks after the fire, and things were kind of settling down, and I came into work early Monday morning, and there was a woman in my office, and I just kind of looked at her, and she looked familiar, and then I went to my office, and they said, hey, she wants to talk to you, and it, it was Micah, Allison, um, Derek, um, Manny's wife, so the, the, the couple that were like the main t um, tenants or whatever, Manager. managers of the ghost ship. And obviously she was a mess and you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure how I can help you or what do you need, you know? And she's like, well, um, I need help with our kids. So they have three children. And I'm like, okay, well that's kind of our specialty. So you know, children and families and everything. So what do you need? You need a place to, to, to live that would kind of just create normalcy for their kids because two of their their two young ones went to Ascend Elementary, which is where most of our Head Start kids go, so we know it very well. And their eighth grade daughter went to Epic Middle School, where, again, a lot of our families go. So we knew, we, we knew them, and, we, and I, we were able to find them housing, which they ended up not taking. But um, the next thing you know, they're, they're in our office almost every day. And we were kind of brokering um, the, the partnership with the Red Cross. And Ed was very specific. like. Let's do everything at your office. So it was just, it was learning and learning and learning about that. And then I think soon thereafter, we started getting into the conversations about the resiliency work and, and what we should really look at the fruit veil, the density of the fruit veil. And for us at the time, we were, we were actually getting ready to, you know, to, to um, how are we going to work with our, the new administration as Donald Trump was going to get ready to start his presidency in January 2017. So that's what we were gearing up for because we knew he was, you know, who he liked and who he didn't like and how he vilified the Latino community and what that meant. So, you know, we were already starting to do a lot of work with our other organizations. And I think um, as the, the resiliency work was introduced, it was like, it was like a very good timing to, to start kind of working with all of our community partners. And I could talk about maybe more of that later. I just wanted to um, preface that, as you said, in the Fruitvale, your resiliency is new to you. Resiliency isn't new to the Fruitvale. You've been a resilient community, talking it and messaging resiliency amongst your constituents is what becomes new. Like in our community, Bayview, we've mastered 
to overcome a lot of barriers, the closing of the shipyard, redevelopment. So resiliency is a new to communities, but talking and preparing resiliency as to how we survive post-disaster is what's new. Thank always you. Teaching, always learning, always, you know, that's right, you're right. And I think as, as someone who kind of embodies diversity in some of my own ways of being in the world, I think about the ways that we can sit with each other and listen to each other and learn what are the different bathroom needs? What are the different welcome signs that are needed for the front door? What symbols do we need that's gonna make someone understand that it's a food space rather than a whatever um, space? The ways that we can be in conversation with a many, as many diverse types of folk as possible, the better prepared we are for when an emergency decides to happen near us. P communities that already have vulnerabilities, we have the opportunity, maybe this is just a sermon I preach too much on Sundays, but we have an opportunity to help people in their daily emergencies every single day to practice our skills with people who already have needs and the same need for shelter in a big emergency is the need that a large portion of people have every day of the week. We get to practice feeling less overwhelmed about it. Uh, as a person of faith, I know that sometimes people think my outfit or my haircut or the steeple on a building gives people the idea that I am already prepared regardless of whether or not I did. And so it gives us an opportunity to think about if people of all different cultures and, and expressions and ways of being in the world are going to run to my building thinking I'm prepared for them, what work do I need to be able to do in advance? And the more we lift up conversations like this, it's not going to change the fact that in an emergency we have to adapt and we have to, you know, use the duct tape and the gum that's on hand instead of the cool equipment we thought was going to have enough battery life. Um, but it's going to give us the opportunity in some aspects to plan ahead for the things that are within our control or get people in fancy buildings like this to notice the good work that's already happening in neighborhoods and to allocate the funds that will help people continue that good work because they already been doing it with gum and duct tape, right? Yeah. Excellent, so you know, from our perspective, when we talk about engagement on the front end, it makes all the difference in the world. Right, because emergency management, more than anything, is a business of personal relationships. And the worst time in the world to exchange a business card is after the disaster has taken place. And so what we find is that as communities come together and bring stakeholders around the planning table, as they consider one another's needs, understand what the capabilities are of government, what the role of preparedness on the individual side, and on and on and on are, they come to a place where suddenly they're creating a plan that is truly inclusive and that is enabling the entire community 
to maintain their health and their independence and their dignity in the aftermath of a disaster. And while that process can sometimes be challenging, the outcome of your plan will be so much greater if you've had those bright people around the table. I, I joke sometimes that uh, I've got daughters and they wanted, to, they wanted to bake. And they asked my wife, hey, can we make something? And she said, yeah, make some brownies. And she gave them the, the recipe and all the ingredients. And my daughters who were young at the time, they didn't understand, well, I don't get it because I'm looking at eggs and salt and sugar and all this stuff, but that's not what brownies look like. And she said, look, just trust the, trust the process. Well, you know, they never baked, and so they thought, well, one egg versus two eggs, who cares? It's cool to crack eggs. Sugar versus salt, it's both white, who cares? So what they ended up baking up looked very disgusting. <laughs> now, as their father, I have some sort of a, a moral or legal responsibility to take the first bite. <laughs> and I looked at my daughters and I said, I, I quit. I can't, no, I can't do this. I don't have that type of resilience in my stomach. And so I said well, uh, to my youngest, sweetie, why don't you take a bite and describe it to me? And she took a bite, and her face described to me how terrible it tasted. My wife saw a learning opportunity, teachable moment, and said, girls, why don't you go back, but this time include each ingredient in the proper portion, in the proper order, and mix it up together and see what happens. And they did. And what came out tasted delicious, and I was more than happy to eat my fair share. And that's what I think of when I think about community planning. That if you look around this room, we all have different backgrounds, life experiences, roles, responsibilities. We work with different agencies, groups and organization, in the public and private sector. And yet, when you put us all together, we bake up something tremendous that in this case would, would smell and taste like resilience, uh, which is something we can all benefit from. So that's, that's the benefit of, of engaging people early on. I think that's how you get to be a resilient people. Okay, thank you. Panel over. <laughs> no, that sums up perfectly about why we should engage communities especially of the vulnerable population early. What I hear is we need to plan with people, not for them. And that you have all stakeholders at the table, those who will be directly affected by the benefit by which you're producing. And then that it's di diverse and inclusive of all of those different populations of people and that we come together to talk about how we collaboratively seek fundraising versus competitively be against fundraising. What are some areas to improve, be it from the private sector, the community, or the government sector in your um, 
in your opinion, when it comes to engaging your particular community? Some areas for improvement. All right, well, you just heard from me, so I'll try and keep it short. Um, you know, I, I think that we always feel a sense like we're doing good things, and that's important, because a lot of great work is being done. But none of us can really hang that mission accomplished banner, right? There's always more we can do. But, but what I found is that uh, different sectors have, have different areas. So on the government side, I think we have to really get to a point where we understand there's no loophole in the Americans with Disability Act for disasters, right? So, so we have this, this feeling of like, well, we don't have to provide uh, interpreters or effective communication because it's a disaster and things are crazy. But there is no regulatory relief on that front. You can't go to a Red Cross shelter and say, hey, it's a disaster, so, you know, look, sorry, it's on the the second floor of an inaccessible building. We did what we could, there's a fire outside, what do you want? And so understanding that we're on the hook, not just legally, but morally to do the right thing, how do we plan accordingly to ensure we get there? It's the worst thing in the world to have a disaster and somebody with a disability goes to a shelter and they're told, if you stay here, we don't have the wraparound services to ensure that you can use a restroom or put you in an accessible cot, which means you have no choice but to stay in your chair and soil yourself and sit in your own filth until something better comes along or go back to the disaster area. What kind of a choice is that? And yet, when we don't plan ahead, when we don't recognize our own limitations, when we don't accept responsibility for the duties that we do have to take, this is exactly the position people are left in. And it's happened up and down the state at various times. Now recognizing that, I will say, we have worked, I saw Trevor, where's Trevor? There's Trevor. We've worked with Trevor and our friends at the Red Cross. We've worked with our friends at other governmental agencies. I work with many of the people that are in the room right now to ensure that that understanding is where we start. That's our starting point. How do we make everything equal in terms of access so that we can get to a point where there's equality in terms of response and recovery. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that answers exactly the question, but I would say that we have to start by understanding that there are certain things that we have to do, whether it's a good day or a bad day, and they're regulatory, they're legal, and they're moral, and they all point to the same outcome. Great answer. I'll use an experience from doing kind of S SFPD chaplaincy work, if only to put in a plug for the new community chaplaincy we're working on to get faith leaders sent to 911 calls. Um, for me, one of the biggest difficulties is communicating across lines. Like there might be seven different agencies in San Francisco who would be really great to come to a mass casualty incident 
to provide psychological first aid or PTSD care, but who's the person in that office who can say, go? Who's the person at emergency management who can dispatch them to the, the location they need to be at? Who's the person who's at the yellow tape of the first responders who can make sure they're cleared to get into the line of where people are in need of care and support? And who are the people who are gonna debrief them afterwards and make sure they don't go home with their own residual trauma? Who's gonna feed them and all of those other issues? And part of that is trying to figure out not only who are all the players in the room, but who answers text but not email, or will only answer their phone on Thursdays, or that has an amazing secretary who can get you lunch with them. And I think communication, because we have so many different opportunities con to connect with each other, also becomes overwhelming. Like, whose inbox stresses them out when they see the number of emails that are in there and triages based on who's gonna yell at you first if you don't get their email responded to or is buried in grant paperwork or has to grab a, a binder of all the things they have to keep track of if they step foot at that emergency site because it all has to be documented. And my kind of train of thought is do the best you can until someone smarter comes to relieve you. And yet it doesn't feel like that's always possible with everyone's role in the position that you're in. And so if there are ways to fix a communication system, if there was a way to have chains of command that facilitated cooperation, and if there are ways to err on the side of assuming the best in the people who showed up to an emergency, even in retrospect on the news and in a hearing about it and in your boss's office, it becomes a lot easier to be present and help in an emergency if you feel the freedom to be fully in that space particularly if you're a person from a vulnerable community in that job. So, um, like improvements, challenges, right? What can be improved? Yes. Um, I think, so now, now that we've been doing this work, this resiliency work for um, almost a year now, I mean, we had the, I think the press conference on February 25th. And I, I yeah, I want to acknowledge Sam and Shante out in the, in the back there, they're with the mayor's office in Oakland, AmeriCorps folks who've really been uh, great partners in the, um, all of the, the work in the Fruitvale and Dina right here with um, Office of Emergency Services with the uh, Oakland Fire Department. So I think, you know, for us and for our board and our staff, the way we talk about it is like, of all the work that we're doing right now, this could be like the most important work that, that we're leaving for the Fruitvale and for all of our partners because we have all of the major partners engaged, the La Clinica, Centro Legal, the different schools and other um, faith-based organizations. So, and everybody's really energized and behind it. Now, a lot of it's falling on us to continue to lead it and it's not something that we really anticipated. So, like, so how do we keep it moving, right? And is that like, you know, corporations jumping in, PG&E or whoever else? Um, you know, we're kind of in that stage right now, but the, the, the thing is we have a lot of energy. I know actually today, um, 
Mayor Schaaf's folks are back in New York and they're presenting the resilient Fruitvale work to some potential partners or funders or whatever. So I think, I think that's important, right? And um, they, they want this work to continue. It's important, but how do you, like, how do you figure out a ways um, to, to, to keep it moving? And so those are just kind of some of the challenges that we're kind of working through right now. But I think we, we have some, um, some really, I think, strong possibilities to keep the work going. So some of the takeaways I hear is how to keep the systems or the process moving, how to fix communication systems, and then the equity amongst response and recovery in how we communicate across lines. In that said, I, when I think about Resilient Bayview more in particular to your question, is one good thing in San Francisco is we don't go and talk about Resilient Bayview, we bring Resilient Bayview to talk about Resilient Bayview. So because on the ground, those who are on the ground know what the issues are before they happened, they know the issues are as you stand, and they also know the desired outcome of the community, not just the numbers or, or the funding. So always keeping in contact with the posts of the community, because sometimes in politics, we go where politics go and not where community go. So it becomes a separation versus a continual movement on the progress that the community is looking for, the, looking at the outcome. And um, I wanted to open it up to questions as I know we probably got 15 minutes in case any of the audience have any questions around best practices, um, other opportunities to engage community or solutions to engaging communities. Check, check. QA right now? Yes, Q&A. Hello, yes. Uh, Felicia, I, um, I marvel at the wonderful work that you and Gil Hodge and the other people do in the Bayview, and I um, would like to know the magic, if you could please share that. Um, I think one of the things that we struggle with in our neighborhood is um, complacency. Also, we struggle a lot with how to get people engaged um, it's almost like the message goes out, but it feels like it just goes over a cliff and, and there's no real way. And if you could share your magic with us, I would take it back to our neighborhood and be very happy. Now, you know a magician never shares their magic. Because <laughs> if I share my tricks, I'm gonna have to kill you. You know, um, I could speak for myself and I believe this to be true for GEO is when the community gets sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. We've put on the dog and pony show, we've had the community meetings, you've had the block parties, you've, you've gotten money. The worst part for me is when I came to City Hall and my supervisor said, we put more than $2 million into your community to address violence. And I went to 27 funerals in a matter of three months and I was trying to figure out 
$2 million, 27 funerals of youngsters 25 years of age or older, all within a three block radius, the money's not getting to the block because there's a stoppage. But when the community gets sick and tired of being sick and tired, they come out of complacency and okay with the status quo. But until the community is fed up, Things just continue on the conveyor belt. No matter how politicians, community leaders, and others see it, until the community is fed up, those who are living with it. A lot of us go in and out of communities, work, or passing through, but when those who are lifelong members moved away maybe, but still vested in the community, when they're tired, change begins to evolve. If people are still operating, I heard, the, I heard the saying, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you always got. So to me, if the community's not shaking and moving, they're not quite, quite tired of the situation. And, and just to add, I mean, the core tenet of the whole community approach is meeting communities where they are. Right, and that's the part that we always remember. Just because you got a grant and you have six months to implement it, doesn't mean that the community thinks they want to do this in six months, and that you, they're excited you got a grant, but they didn't apply for it, right? So just always temper your enthusiasm for your work by recognizing that that may not be the situation in the community that you're going into at that time, or it may not be their priority. Yeah, I've already got your mic, Daniel. Can you stand up? <clears throat> sure. Then you get to talk. And then I get to talk. Okay. So um, my name is Jen Strauss. I work for the ShakeAlert Earthquake Early Warning System. And we're trying to roll this out. And Margaret and I are, are working on this. And one of the key things that we keep talking about is, you know, how do you make sure the system's accessible for access and functional needs? Um, but my question is, what are your sort of advice recommendations to make sure that we do this in a conscious way and we don't just have our one token AFN representative that's giving their two cents and we can check off that box and move on. Is there, do we need to be doing workshops? Do we need to have like some sort of certain organizations we should be reaching out to? How do we not make, do a bad job of this, I guess, basically? Well, you're, you're starting from a good place, right? There's, there's a lot of value in knowing that there's certain things we just don't know. So how do we get there? And, and everybody's starting from the right place in that it's good people wanting to do good things, but oftentimes it's on us to empower those individuals, right? So I would say, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna wanna reach out to your independent living centers and your regional uh, centers and your nonprofits and your service providers. And there's a whole long list. And, and we can provide you with all those folks to, to reach out to, but it's also understanding the, the, the place where we start. It's, you're doing early earthquake warning, right? So it's easier to think of yourself as, as a tech provider or a program implementer, but, but, but that's not really what you are. You're not in the business of, of technology. You're in the business of saving lives, right? That's your role, that's your responsibility. That ultimately is your duty and it's saving the lives of everyone in this state, regardless of background or physical or intellectual uh, ability. 
or financial background, or which language they speak is their primary language. And so, in that sense, you have this unique opportunity to be the right person at the right time of the people that you serve. And some of you have heard me tell this story, right? I think I told this one workshop you were at. When my youngest daughter was born, but my wife and I did a silly thing, and I'll say my wife and I, but she called the shots. That's the way it works in my family. Uh, she, she wanted to wait until just before uh, the baby was born to go to the hospital. Because the first time we were there forever, so she didn't want to do that again. Three minutes apart, the contractions were. Finally, my wife says, okay, now, now you may take me to the hospital, which is 45 minutes away. <laughs> we were living in DC. What does traffic look like on a Wednesday morning at eight o'clock in the morning? I could have gotten her there faster if I had carried her on my wheelchair. <laughs> Ultimately, we were stuck. And with tears rolling down her face, she said, oh, we're going to have the baby in the car. And I said, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> right? We all know this guy. He's the guy we see on the news. Well, my instincts took over, and I took off a shoelace, and we made it happen. Uh-uh. I'm not built for that. So I looked over and saw there was a cop. And we rolled the window down and asked, please, can we have a police escort? My wife, there's a baby, help. And he looked and said, yeah, we don't really do that. And he rolled up his window. And we about died. A few minutes later, probably sensing the desperation from our vehicle, he rolled the window back down and said, all right. I'm going to give you the escort. I'm going to flip my lights on, stand my tail, we'll get through traffic. Next thing I know, we're bombing our way through downtown traffic. Which, as a side note, I will tell you. If you ever have the chance to get a police escort through downtown traffic, do it. It's amazing. <laughs> tell my wife, thank you for this opportunity. She did not seem to appreciate it as much at the time. We got to the hospital, and 15 minutes later, my daughter was born. And I think on that story, and I wonder how different the tale would be that I might tell had it not been for the right person at the right time in the exact moment of our lives when we needed them most. And that's you. Right? That's all of us. We have the opportunities through the work that we're doing right now, through the partnerships we're establishing, through the relationships and the trust that we're building, through the integrated plans that we're working through, to ensure that when people have their worst days, when their lives are literally on the line, our efforts will be the difference. And in that sense, we will have gotten to play that role of the right person at the right time in their lives 
And that's about the greatest privilege we can ask for. So it's a great opportunity. I'm glad to be in this boat with you. I don't know that there can be a part two to that answer because it was very in its entirety. But um, I wanted to also say having people from that community at the table. I had a staff meeting and we were talking about seniors and I looked around and every one of my staff were 25 or I'll say 40 and younger. And it dawned on me, they're speaking on behalf of the seniors, let's go grab a senior too and bring them to the table. And before we could even get the meeting started, they said, who's supposed to read this text? <laughs> and you learn very quickly, without a lot of work, without a lot of planning and brainstorming, what actually works for the vulnerable population by bringing them right to the table. It'll affect even your process of bringing them to the together bringing them to the table because I recognize we were in a conference room that pe people couldn't even slide around by. So it changed our process from beginning and through and through by adding the voice that we were championing our causes for to the table. And I would, I would add to one of my favorite phrases that police officers sometimes say to me is like, your job is to bring God to this scene which to me is a gift because it means it's not my job to do everything in that space. I'm not the person with the caution tape. I'm not the person who has to deal with the press. I have one focus. And if you look around this space and you see the number of people who are in here partnering on the same work, you can't ever have one person trying to represent a whole group if you partner with those organizations whose job it is to help you make your your project speak to that community. And so the more we do our role the best we can in the way that is ours to do, I think the, the more our resiliency knitted patchwork quilt ends up working well, right? Because then the people most affected are the ones with the microphone and the people who can help you solve your problem, can solve it for you. And so if your job is to let us know about earthquakes fast enough. I don't know how to do that math, right? But other people can help you with the parts that maybe aren't in your wheelhouse. And that's, you know, get all the business cards you can for when you got to figure out those problems. But do what's yours. Thank you. If I could just add real quick, I think the other thing um, to, to consider is language, right? I mean, if you're going to come into different communities, you, you know, whether it's Spanish, Cantonese, mom, I mean, there's just a variety of... Um, different languages that, that need to, to be able to reach. And then um, trust, right? So there's just such mistrust right now. And like, who do they trust, right? So I think even with, with, with my own staff, it's like most of our clients don't, don't really know what we do, but they trust us. How do we know that? They're bringing us their kids every day. They're bringing us their parents every day. You know, so there's this, we have this like innate trust. So if you align yourself with organizations, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of other organizations where at least you're kind of coming th through them. Because otherwise, if you just kind of show up and, you know, you know they're just, they're, you know, especially in, in today's environment, that's just, especially in like in the Latino community right now, you know, that's just something you really, I think you just have to be aware of. Is there one more comment, um, question from a gentleman over there? While you, while you go there, Trey, I wanted to um, just kind of end Hello. that. 
one second, end that conversation by saying language is, can always be a barrier, but in my work with, in Bayview, within Visitation Valley, and even in the OMI, I have found, I don't speak Chinese, I don't speak um, Spanish, I only know how to cuss in all of those languages. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. But um, what I, I have served the vulnerable population of every language because although we, there's a language barrier, when you don't let language or any other barrier separate you because love in any language can overcome whether I could speak your characters. What I learned in, in um, doing a taking sign language is your facial expressions, your feeling from your heart, and your emotions instantly lets a person know whether they could speak your language or not, that they're in trouble or that you're here to help. So just also prefacing, language can be a barrier, but when you don't let the barrier of language separate you from helping to save lives, because I'm pretty sure when the earthquake hits or the tsunami hits or the flood, when you're saying get out and get on my back, you're going to be able to overcome the language barrier just with the sheer stricken panic on your face. So facial expressions and, and pure decency, respect, and love for the human man overcomes language barriers. So just wanted to say that. I'm kind of nervous, and my name is Emerson Chin, and I've been a volunteer at Red Cross, and not just Red Cross, but I help the homeless, and I go to Washington, D.C. to advocate for money for the mayor to help people. And today is Wednesday. I go to the church and most holy redeemer cook for the homeless people. And last week, I gave a sleeping bag and uh, uh, raised doesn't matter because when I was uh, high school, I went to the tough high school with all black kids and I learned I, I really loved them. So when I respond to fires, sometimes they send me a hundred point and I talk to them. And like some of the parents remember me from boys club and now it's boys and girls club. They helped me out and my family were real poor and I went the job driving the bus, Greyhound bus, Muni, and everything. So I learned how to talk to people. And then a 49er came, and I was very nervous. I said, just tell why you're hot, like my scoutmaster said. And I, I can't write, but I talk. And they were very happy about it. And I want to thank you, the special need people, and to help um, the people can walk, and all that, and I love everyone, and it doesn't matter what kind. And I even went to Mr. Brook, the Red Cross, to Washington, D.C., to visit him, all the way down to Washington, D.C. And uh, I try to smile, and if you ever come to the Giants game, I work on the elevator, and I have my elevator music, and just smile, make people happy. Thank you for all that you thank do. You. So we want to thank you. Oh, sorry, Daniel. Oh. 
Okay, probably not as much as a question as, as kind of a statement to folks, on, especially on the early warning stuff. Um, it, we have to be all inclusive. We have to remember to be culturally competent as well, and we have to work on our consistent messaging. Um, our consistent messaging is one thing, but we need to be aware of how we're delivering that messaging and using our organizations to deliver that message and sending it in a way that is translatable or interpreted uh, because not everything means the same thing um, in the same way. So I think that's really important um, and making sure we're kind of checking off all those boxes as well. Um, we have several different organizations. One, our local VOAD or our Northern California VOAD, it's Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster that all organizations are welcome to participate in. It's a great networking opportunity for all of our nonprofits. And a lot of those organizations are actually disaster preparedness, response driven and recovery driven. Um, and really to be engaging with those organizations ahead of time. Um, I'm thrilled, Daniel's awesome. And we absolutely love the work that we're doing in the Fruitvale and the Neighbors Helping Neighbors program that we've used um, in our cities of service back in New York, our, our funders for all these different things, because we do make it happen. It was great to see Bob here today uh, as well, because FEMA and our other funding sources that we have are really starting to learn from us and the work that we're doing as a region and really getting the messaging across of that importance of this networking opportunity that we all do, because it's this face-to-face -face that does make the difference ahead of time. Um, and I love your recipe story. That is kind of like, that cracks me up because the recipe is all of the ingredients, right? And we are all of the ingredients in the room. And if we're gonna make something truly um, inclusive and competent when we want to do this work, um, we want to make sure because first and foremost, you know, it's us first, you know, if we take care of ourselves that enables us to help others. Um, and that is the key. We have to be able to help others. So I hope the takeaway um, from today is really bringing yourself and your whole heart to what you do in this work. I've been in emergency management for 28 plus years now. And the most important thing that I do is working with our organizations and our local communities. So if your emergency management is not reaching out to you, reach out to them, find out who they are. I mean, we have folks in the room today, I know Berkeley's here, you know, San Francisco. We know and we all work together on a regional level with this stuff and we are so close partnerships with Red Cross and all of our other response organizations. It really is important. Um, and the Earthquake Country Alliance and the work that we do, I mean, we have regional work groups that we come together to work on this stuff, but we need your input. We need to hear your voices. Um, and like Daniel says, you go, I'm not always the one speaking in the room. I'm going to have the same problem. He says, yeah, take the microphone. <laughs> so, but it is really important that you all want to have be the, the champions in your communities. And you can do that by just coming together and, and just start working together. It doesn't take money. It takes heart. Thank you. OK, so giving a, a thank thanks to Vance and Chris and Megan for being on our panel and for sharing your stories. Thank you for being a great audience and listening and laughing at my corny jokes. But I wanted to end with one final thought is that if in community resiliency, the whole big point, the little point, 
the first point and the last point is community because therein, as we look across the country just over the last 12 and 18 months, yes, FEMA spent a lot of money, and yes, governments and how big Red Cross has been, but if it had not been for communities standing up, nobody else, there would have been nothing to come and save. So when we're looking to how we become resilient, the, our answers lies within community. Thank you.